Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 86. Do a lot of research that's tailored towards their land and their climate. Have patience and don't get bogged down into one thing. <laughs> You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal. Hardich, you're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating cost. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's episode, we have Nitesh Sackpaul. He is a beginning rancher in northeast New Mexico. Nitesh had contacted me to suggest some potential guests for the podcast. And I said, what about you coming on? He says, they are just starting out. And my response to that is, it's great to hear from people all along their journeys, from beginners to those experiences that's done it for decades. Nitesh is, is just a beginner. And he shares about his journey to where he is now and some struggles he's had and what they're doing and what they're planning to do. And I really appreciate Natesh coming on and being brave enough to share because we've all, all been beginners or if we're not a beginner yet, that's because we haven't started. And anytime we start, there's going to be hurdles. There's going to be challenges. There is a learning curve. Natesh, I really appreciate you coming on, and I think you'll enjoy it. Before we talk to Natesh, 10 seconds about my farm. So I have an experiment going, and I think I mentioned it a few episodes back. I weaned a few calves. In fact, when we had discussed before about the um, pregnancy results that were unsatisfactory for me, um, not as good as I wanted, what I went ahead and did due to a few factors. One, the cows being open, not bringing back for whatever reason. And my fall stockpile did not grow as good as I had planned on it. So it was going to cause me to feed more hay. So I went ahead and I weaned calves off of those cows. And by weaning them, it gave me an opportunity to try bonding my calves with some hair sheep. I've read where people, they bonded hair sheep and cattle together, uh, using mainly young stock, 
And then you're able to run them together and those sheep will stay with the cattle. And that's what I'm trying. I have them in the corral. Well, I say that. I had them in the corral to start out and I put a donkey in there and I have a goose. I've got a a few geese and I have a goose that stays with them. So I left them in the corral for a little while. I'd moved them out on pasture now and I'm moving them in electro netting and keeping the keeping the overall size of the pen pretty small just to help in that bonding. And I've also introduced my goats into that pen. We'll see how it goes. Um, my goal is that I can run that flirt on lease land without a dog. My big concern is predators. With doing this, I'm hoping they the sheep hang out with the cows. I do have that donkey in there for some predator control as well. And we'll see how it goes. And right now, the goose is in the electro net with the other animals. Anyway, I will be keeping you updated. I'll let you know how it goes. But enough about that. Let's talk to Natesh. Natesh, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today. Thanks a lot, Cal. I am super excited to be here. I listen to your podcast pretty much every week on my way to work sometimes. But I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. And thank you for listening. Natesh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Well, my name is Natesh Sakpal. I um, originally am from India. I moved here to go to school. I'm an engineer by profession. I have an engineering job apart from this full-time job. <laughs> uh, we live in Coy County, which is in northeastern New Mexico. And the closest town to us is Tucumcari, New Mexico, which I'm sure people know of because it's right along Route 66. And it's one of those neon lights town that a lot of people stop by for still. But yeah, so me and my partner, we we live here now and um, we had to move back after COVID happened. We lost a family member and we decided to move back and take care of the land and start our own business in a way. Very good. Sorry about your family member. You said you moved back there. So are your parents in the United States? No, sir. I am here by all by myself, but it's mostly my, my partner's family and uh, they pretty much are family. <laughs> well, they are family. But yeah. So first off, where did you go to school? So I guess college is what brought you here? Yeah. Yeah. I went to school in Nebraska. Go Big Red. <laughs> oh, yes. As a former Big 8 foal. Bo, I'm not a big Nebraska fan. Go Pokes. And and just, well, I was going to say the Pokes made it to the Big 12 championship, but by the time this airs, that'll be old history. And I, I may not want to talk about that game at that point. You went to Nebraska, and then what brought you to New Mexico? I went to Nebraska, and then after I graduated, I worked in the, I worked for Farmland Foods, which is mostly pig or hogs. and. Uh, so I worked with them for a few months or maybe uh, six months or so. And then I got a job offered here in Clovis, New Mexico, uh, which was in the dairy industry. So I moved, moved out here for that. And then I met with my partner, Jordan Jennings, who w- was at Eastern New Mexico University up here. Yeah. And then we lived in Clovis and for about 
six years or so and then moved to California and, and Reno, Nevada because he was still in school in between that COVID happened and, and we moved back here. So what made you want to get involved in regenerative agriculture? Because as you, you talk, you, you have a background more in conventional uh, agriculture with the pig farming and dairying, but now you're looking at doing more regenerative stuff. Yeah, that's a good question. I think to me, when the, it all started with like the love for the Western lifestyle which came late, late to me, but, uh, so Jordan's uh, family, they're, they're all cowboys. His dad kind of, uh, has, had been a, a good mentor for me, pretty much picked up learning to ride and cowboying with him. And so it was mostly just, I, I just enjoyed that part of, in know, industry, I guess, with just riding horses or training horses and, and cowboying. But we decided to move back here. I, I wanted to kind of improve the the land that we have in the family or I guess in his family. And I started just researching things. Like it was just simple Google searches. That's how I came across, I think I came across Greg Judy first. I, I watched a lot of his videos and stuff. And then I watched, there's a research lab in Las Cruces, New Mexico, Hornada range. They have been researching Corrientes a lot down there how well they do for the arid semi-arid region and southwest region basically and i I came across that and i I was like i kept i I went down a rabbit hole like you know it's just learning more and more about them and and like how great they are for this part of the country just a bit on that corrientes i'm a little bit more rainfall area than you are but i'm i'm a fan of the corrientes they seem to be doing good for me, and I hear a lot of people like them. That's yeah. good. Yeah, we we had a we had a love and hate relationship with them <laughs> in a way. We went ahead and bought some Corrientes. They only stayed on our property for an hour. Oh and, yes. Yep, and they they hopped the fence, barbed wire fence, like a deer. And it took off. But I think uh, the problem there was that we bought them from a bigger range. There's a big ranch up here and they're very, they do everything they're holistically and, you know, and, and they raise, they raise Corrientes and they, they sell grass-fed beef. And that's kind of how I got, got a hold of those Corrientes. Boy, I chased them all over Quay County. Oh, I imagine so. Because they can be very athletic. And to be honest, when I got my first ones, I'd heard, I think we had um, August Horseman on here and he was talking about it and other people I'd talked to. And I, I kept looking at their prices compared to what I was paying for some other cows. I want to try them, but I'm nervous about it. So mm-hmm. I found about three or four hours away from me, a guy had 20 head of Corriente heifers bred. So I drove down there. And looked at him, talked my wife into going. So it probably cost me lunch and supper. Anyway, <laughs> went went down there and looked at him because I'm like, I told her, if they're crazy, I'm not interested. But I'll just go down and look. And I was shocked by how calm these were. And mm-hmm. um, so I made a deal and purchased them. And he delivered them for me a few weeks later. And I put, pinned them up and I started training them to electric fence. And I got them pretty well trained. And then I, I started my rotations with them. 
And there was some difficult times for me in the beginning. And I ended up selling, I would say two or three because they did not feel like a poly braid was enough of a fence for them to stay somewhere. So I identified those individuals and took them to the cell barn and took a loss on them. But what it did, the ones I kept, they're all great with my fence and they're so calm. It, it's really, I'm just, I'm amazed at how well they've done. So when you say they hopped a fence and changed your day's plans, I can believe it. I still think they're very efficient cows, which they are. I, I, I know they are. And my partner is just, no, <laughs> he doesn't want to have <laughs> yeah. to deal with another Corrientes because like we literally chase these cows all over Coy County. We, they got out. I got on the horse. We started walking them back to the house. They found another hole, took off oh, yes. <laughs> and they were like, we have a, a local airport close by and they got on there. They were on the runway oh, no. at one point. It was, it was crazy, but we finally just had to rope them and drag them into a trailer and, and took them, I took them back to where I got them from. <laughs> Although we kept one. Oh yes. Yeah, we kept one because she stayed in, which was oh yeah. Very, she's a Angus cross, so she had oh, a okay. she has quarter of an Angus in her, but she was bred with an Angus bull. Oh yeah. Well, on that, I get Jordan's apprehension about that. After, if you guys are able to find some that maybe someone's rotating that's used to polybraid or some mm -hmm. calmer ones, he ought to give them a second chance. I do get that because when your day's plan change because of an animal or two, I'm usually not a very big fan of those animals then because I had other things planned. So you got, so you kept that one. Did you buy some more cattle or do you already have some cattle there? The one that stayed actually later on decided that she just had to hop the fence. So she hopped the fence. And so grandma's uh, ranch is pretty close to us and uh, the road pretty much goes nowhere else other than to her property. So I think she just kept that, took that road and she went to her property. And at that point, at that time, she was leasing that land to this another uh, gentleman and uh, he had some cows there. So I think she just went in with his cows. We tried to bring her back, but it was too much to, you know, sort one cow out of his big herd. So grandma already named her grace and so she wanted her to stay there so she's she's been there now but uh and now we're leasing that property after that uh i i was i still hadn't give up, given up on corrientes at that at that point uh so i was still looking for you know somewhere to buy the corrientes from and then uh, i was in touch with uh, new mexico state because uh a lot of times they bring cattle in and you know they feed them and do the research on them and so i was trying to see if i can find some some from them which would be which had a lot more people interaction so i got it i went up to clayton new mexico i got in touch with a professor up there he told me to come up there and look at the the cows that they have and he told me you're free to pick whichever you want from here but you should come and check out my cows too and i was like okay <laughs> and he raises gelbies up there Oh, yes. They use them for, for some research work up there at the lab. When I went out there, boy, those cows were so calm and they were, oh, <laughs> they yeah. were almost like yeah. pets. 
I pretty much fell in love with them, to be honest, with the red ones. <laughs> and, um, so it kind of ditched the plan of buying the Corrientes from New Mexico State. And instead, I oh, went ahead and bought the balancer bread heifers from him. Natesh, what is a balancer? Yeah, so the balancer is a gelby crossed with red, red Angus. Well, if they're red. So these were red gelbys crossed with red Angus. And uh, I think there is a percentage that goes from 25 to 75, maybe. So if it has the gelby 25%, it's still considered a balancer, if I'm not wrong. And uh, yeah, so I bought those balancer bread heifers from him and they've been doing good so far. <laughs> so how, how long ago was that when you purchased them? I bought them, that was uh, last October, I want to say. Oh, yes. Have you, have they calved for you yet? Yeah, they already, had, we had all except one did not calve. I contacted the professor up there and told him like, man, I thought I bought this one bread. <laughs> and he said that the vet didn't do a good job of screening oh, yeah. them, I guess, checking them. Cause a lot of the ones that he said were open turned out to be red and vice versa. Oh yes. But yeah. Yeah. That, that palpation, palpating them for pregnancy, that the art and science of it, not that I've never done enough to be good at it. But I have done it a little bit, and it takes some time. And depending on how far they along they are, it can make a difference. So, have you been yeah. pretty happy with them? Yes, I think we're pretty happy with them. We we really enjoy. It. They're re- very calm to work with, you know. And um, and I and now, like I truly believe that the traits are heritable because <laughs> the the calves that they have had are the same way. Like they're they're very calm. You know, I can, uh, getting them into the shoot for the first time was not an issue at all. And, and again, with the Corrientes though, they just, the, that one that we have and the, and her calf, man, he still gives us a little bit of problem, <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. but no, I'm, I'm happy with the balancers. We did, or I've talked about it, this on the podcast. My dad, for a long time, he ran limousine cows and that's still the basis of his herd. But when we first started thinking we wanted to move outside of limousine, we looked at Galvey because of some shared history there of the breeds, and they've just gone down a little bit different paths. And we did buy a Galvey bull, I want to say out in Enid, Oklahoma. We drove out there and purchased one and really liked his disposition. And he, he worked for us. I don't think we ended up with many heifers out, out of him in that they'd be half Gelby, half limousine, which I'm not, not quite sure why that happened. But I, I thought he was good. It just didn't, didn't work out in Dad's herd, but I've always liked Gelby. So I could really see combining that with Red Angus for your balancer could be a really nice cross. Now, as you look at those cows, how big would you say those are, they are? The Gelbys itself, they're pretty big animals. They're, they're a big breed. But the red Angus crosses, our Angus bull is not, I guess, he's, he's not as big of a bull. The heifers out of him turned out to be not as big as the Gelbys get. So yeah. I would say they're a smaller, they're probably close to a thousand pounds. Yeah. So they're, I won't say, I, I think they're not as big. They don't get as big as the Gelbys or maybe the Charlays. I don't know. 
when you yeah. cross them. That would be my thoughts that if you use a moderate size red Angus um, to cross them with, you'd be bringing down some size just a little bit and maybe improving grass efficiency in my mind without, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not super familiar with Galvium, somewhat familiar, but not super familiar. So I could be someone who's got Galvies out there could be yelling right now at me saying, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'd have to say, I don't, <laughs> so I probably should be quiet. So you got those heifers there. Did you start rotational grazing or did you do set, set stock to get started? Or how did you manage them when you got them? Yeah. So when we first got them, we did not, we didn't have as much land at that at that time. So all we had was the 80 acres that we lived on. It, it's covered in mesquite pretty oh, much. Yes. So we, we didn't have as much, as much grass to feed them. So I think that that winter, we pretty much just had to pay them, which was, oh, yeah. was a lot of hay. <laughs> and we were blessed with some good rains during the springtime. So some of the grass came up early and we got to graze them then. And that spring we signed up or we took over more, more leases from um, Jordan's dad. So we, then after that, we, uh, we moved them to the, the pasture he has, which one of the pastures that was, I uh, think, about quarter of a section, and it already had fences that kind of helped us, you know, move them. I would say that we haven't done as good of a job moving them, but as we, you know, progressed throughout the through the summer, kind of looked at where the, you know, where how the grass was looking, and I would just drive out there, shake a bag of cake, and they would come running and. <laughs> And close the gate and <laughs> yes and and you know you you mentioned there maybe you didn't move them as much as you wanted to or should have or anything you know wh- when you're getting started on the journey you got to do what you can do and and you're building your experience with those gals and getting started and even for me i've been doing this for a long time and i still have a goal of daily moves Certain times of the year, I do daily moves. Certain times of the year, I don't. And it's just because you have off-the-farm jobs, so that makes a difference. That makes a difference for me. But it's a, it's a progression, and you're working. As long as you're, you're doing that next step, I think you have to do what you can do at the time and then try and do a little bit better tomorrow. Yes, sir. Yeah. And I think for us, our, our immediate goal is to establish grass pastures so we're, we're focusing more on that you know alongside of obviously raising cows but our ma- main goal is to eradicate the the mesquite out off the land and put some grass seed down and, and get grass growing the other pastures that we have now that we're leasing we're we're trying our best to keep them moving there so that they don't overgraze a section oh yeah and and they do they uh it's crazy because uh i've noticed this we have buffalo grass in certain sections, and then we have Kentucky blue. We have some sand drop seed. We have a bunch of well, it's all native grasses, but they will they won't touch the sand drop seed for some reason. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> you know they'll they'll graze everything else down, and I've seen that in, in so many spots. It's kind of frustrating. <laughs> yes, to be honest, I have not been to New Mexico. I've always dreamed of going out to Clovis, New Mexico, because of the dairies out there. At least, 
years ago, there was a lot of dairies. I assume there still are. So, so that's all on one of these days, I'm going to go out there and not just fly over New Mexico, but I've been to Amarillo and I know when I go out there, I look at that ground and there's not a lot of grass out there. So I'm assuming you're very similar to Amarillo or, or maybe not quite as good as Amarillo. Yeah. We're, you, you take Amarillo and we're, we're worse than Amarillo. <laughs> how, how far are you from Amarillo? We're about 80 miles from Amarillo. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So not too far. Yeah, yeah. Not too far, but <laughs> I always tell people that we're, we're a lot prettier than the West Texas <laughs> panhandle is because we have a lot of mesas around and, you know, there's a, um, the mountains kind of around us and we're lo- we're sort of in a, in a valley here, still pretty higher up elevation. But yeah, no, Amarillo, although they, they do have the advantage of having uh, Ogallala, the aquifer there. So they're, they're able to pump water out of there. <laughs> we, on the other hand, are kind of at the mercy of rain. Although we do have ir- irrigation water that's coming from um, Conscious Lake. So we do have a lot of irrigated pastures, but the water irrigation here depends on rainfall. And, you know, if the, the lake is full, they'll send water down. But yeah, no, we average about 17 to 18, 18 inches, maybe, of rainfall. There have been years where it was only like 12 inches uh, or less. But when I say that average, it's an average for Quake County. And the county is very, it's really big county. Like I said, we have like these uh, mesas and cap rocks around us, which are a little bit higher elevation than us. So a lot of times the rain kind of goes there and it doesn't come to us as much. So, but yeah, the, but the last spring we got a lot of rain. We probably got like nine or 10 inches in that one or two or three months. Now you are working to get some pasture established. What is the process you're going through to convert those pastures from, mes- from mesquite to something that's a little bit more digestible than mesquite? Yeah, so the the pasture that we're working on now was probably the worst affected by the mesquite. And this is not the there's I think there's a there's some variety of mesquite that some they grow tall and you know that that you chop oh, wood yeah. off and th- these are not the nicer ones. These are the ones that <laughs> they just they stay short and they keep getting broader and uh, oh yes. They so they're r- very hard to get rid of and what we have well, I, I read some papers on that and, you know, it said that mechanical grubbing was the best way to kill them. So we spent some money out of our pocket to get that grubbing going. And uh, we cleared about 20 acres of mesquite from there. And, uh, oh, yes. And then we windrowed everything and had to, we're burning them as we go. So as they dry up, we're burning up, oh, trying yeah. to clear up that land. But now... I am in a contract with NRCS to get some additional grubbing done. So I think that will, that'll be very helpful. But yeah, mechanical grubbing is the best way to go. Now, when you say mechanical grubbing, is that a dozer coming in? Is that like a, a brush hog? I mean, it'd take quite the brush hog to mow that, but what's that look like for someone who hasn't done that? Yeah. So we have to get a backhoe. And which has a, there's a special blade or tool that some guy in town has, has built and 
So we, we have him contracted, but yeah, so he brings his backhoe and then it's a big machine. You have to pull him to where that tap root is out. And then you have to lay them upside down when, when it's all done. Cause their roots can go, they go pretty far down <laughs> and, uh, and they're, I forget the word they use, but they basically, you can't just, um, you can't just mow them down cause they'll, they'll come back and they come back stronger when they do that. Oh yes. Yeah. Now, did you consider like running goats on there or anything? I have, but I just have like shared how hard it is to keep the goats in. And I actually, personally, I love goat meat too. So I would love to have some goats. <laughs> we haven't tried that. And my, my other concern with putting goats out there is that we already have limited grass. I don't want the, you know, the cows and goats having to compete for the grass. Cause obviously the goats are going to eat the grass first and then go to the mesquite. But I could be wrong about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have not tried grazing any mesquite. Now, I want to say I was just at um, Noble Research Institute, their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course, and I believe we were talking there, and I believe they said for mesquite, there's certain times if you run cattle in there, I may have this all messed up, so I'm going to put it out there, but it may not be right, and whoever can correct me on this, but at a certain point, you can push cattle on there and those leaves are tender and they'll pull those leaves, they'll eat them. And then there's, I want to say there's like three times you got to do that. I don't know. There's a whole process, but you can get some grazing from those trees with cattle or if you were to put goats or sheep out there. But long run, it's front loaded, but you get that seeded into something else that, that'll probably benefit you greatly. Do you have a... A thought or a plan for what you're going to seed it in? Yes, I, I do. And the other reason why I was looking at Corrientes was because that they will eat mesquite. <laughs> They'll graze on mesquite. Like that's proven. There's videos also out, of, out there of them eating <laughs> mesquite trees or, you know, leaves off of them. But I have noticed that the Gelwees also do that. They, they have been great. They eat the leaves off of them. The problem, though, is that they also like to eat this, the, the seed pot because um, they're sweet. And it's the same thing with horses. They, they love that. And, and then, you know, they obviously drop those seeds elsewhere. And now you have more mesquite. <laughs> so they're spreading the mesquite for you. That, that's interesting about the um, seed pods. I know with honey locusts, and we deal more in this area where I am with honey locusts versus mesquite and honey locusts those seed pods are are a source of energy because they're sweet and there's i think austin austin unrout that we had on the podcast a long time ago he talked about different varieties have a you know a little bit they've been bred for a bigger seed pod to provide more nutrition which is interesting i hadn't really thought about the mesquite like that but that would be a potential with the downfall that they're spreading it out even further for you. Yeah, yeah. And I think, again, I, I wouldn't be uh, as opposed to, you know, having, because the mesquite does also give them shade and stuff, but they have to be the right kind of mesquite trees. They have to be the ones that grow tall. And, and the ones that we have, they just stay short and they keep spreading. And then they're to a point where, you know, cows won't even want to travel through there because... You know, there's just these pokey things all over on the ground. It's kind of like having small, sh short 
cactus all over. And a lot of times they, they suck up so much moisture that nothing else grows around them. And a lot of it has happened, especially on this one property that we have, is because of it being so overgrazed because it was just poorly managed before. Horses are, I mean, I love my horses, but they're, they're very bad at, you know, grazing close to the ground. And that, that's kind of what caused the proliferation of the mesquite on our properties because it was overgrazed before. But yeah, what we did was that I wanted to have half a pasture to myself to basically uh, do what I wanted to do with it and not have kind of NRCS dictate what I should. Well, they don't, you come up with a plan with them, but uh, after that, they're very diligent about, you know, you have to follow everything that they say. So we just, we have like half a pasture that we're able to uh, uh, crop and the other pasture, we're taking the mesquite out, which it is out now. And we're going to plant native grass there. So it's just going to be a mixture of the, you know, blue grumba, sand drop seed. Yeah. Buffalo grass and stuff. Mainly warm season grasses. Yeah. It's all mostly just warm season grasses. A lot of times during the summer months, it gets so hot. And I don't know if the cool season grasses will do good over here as much. Although grandma has on her property, which I don't, I'm not, I don't know about Kentucky bluegrass, how well it does, but her pastures were irrigated. So they have established there. Very good. So actually two things before we go to the overgrazing, we dive in a little bit deeper in that NRCS. One, just in your short time of doing this, what's been bigger challenges than you initially thought they were going to be? The bigger challenges have been, I think I'm, I'm always just um, worried about my cows getting out, just, you know, uh, walking the fences and making sure the fences are up and right. And it's kind of hard to do that when, when you have, I guess, 600 acres for us to graze. And, oh, yeah. and, and that's kind of daunting. We moved our cows over to the bigger ranch that was during early summer or late springtime. And we got this, these spring storms, boy, we got a, we got a lot of rain, which we needed, but, um, that also meant that all our creeks and water gaps um, were taken down by that water coming down, you know? And, um, when we let the cows out, we thought that, okay, we have grass all over here. Like there's good grass. They're not going to go over to the challenging territory, you know, cause, um, some parts of the, the ranch, like. You, you have to have a horse to get there because it's, you know, you can't get, get, get there with the four by four or anything. And I was like, the cows are not going to try to go there. So we didn't really care to check the fences down that way. Sure enough, they found that hole and they, they got out and that was, that was crazy. And we, uh, I actually have a friend up here who raises longhorns and he, uh, helped me with his drone because his longhorns get out and he uses a drone to like oh yeah fly over the area to see where they might be and and that's what we did and we found them and got them back but yeah yeah they'll they'll find a spot for sure have you started any um electric using poly braid or electric fence with them what we did was we just had two strands and they seem to be you know okay with it like they They've been respecting that. So, oh, uh, yeah. Well, good. 
most of our fences are just barbed wire fences. At least the, the oh, perimeter yeah. fences are. Like I said, the land has a lot of seasonal creeks, and so we have we just have to maintain the water gaps there because oh, yeah. the spring storms tend to do a lot of damage sometimes. Oh, I'm I'm sure. Yes, as you're getting started with this, and we're going to talk about in in our CSM just a little bit. But where do you want your farm to go? Where do you see it going next five years? What's your goal? For me, my, my first priority is to get the land up to where I want it to be. I want to improve the land first. And I think I'm focusing more on that and, you know, alongside of raising cows. So I think my, my goal is to establish good pastures and have like a, a system in place to where I know that I can forecast how much grass I have or, or a crop that I planted, you know, and, and go from there. But as of now with our small herd, we're just trying to, our goal is to sell bulk beef this coming year. We're just grain finishing them at this point because the grass is limited here. That's going to be our goal is to have a, a set of commercial herd, also having a small operation going for direct consumer business. So, but before I get there, I, I, I mean, we're, we're blessed to have the, the land that we have, you know, with then the family. And um, I know it's, it's hard, to, land is hard to come for a lot of people. Leases are also going up there. It's not cheap. <laughs> so I just want get, to get to a point where I, I'm comfortable with the amount of grass I would have, or, you know, a system is in place that I can feed them year long and I don't have to worry about haying them. Right. Yeah. Well, th those are our great goals to work towards and um, it'll be exciting to see your progress there. Thank you. Natesh, let's go ahead and move to our overgrazing section where we take a little bit deeper dive into something going on in your operation. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the NRCS and your prescribed grazing and what you're doing with them. Mm -hmm. So just tell us what you're, what you're doing with them. And I have a few questions. Yeah, sure. With NRCS, what we have now is I wanted to start with on a smaller property first and go from there. And the project that we have now is to get the mesquite out of there. And then we have to build up, build some fences. The only fences that they like are barbed wire fences. So we're we're building some fences and then establishing the grass. After that, they want us to have a grazing plan, which will basically just mean that we'll have to rotate the cows every so often. They have a, a set number of cattle that can go on a land, but they don't, I guess they don't push for it as hard, but there's a recommendation from them. Oh, yes. The major thing is just getting the fences in place, which... I was a little bit disappointed because I'm not getting to use the electric fences there, you know, because uh, these are not perimeter fences, but they, they want us to have the four-strand barbed wire fence. They have to be a certain specification to keep the antelope and deer where the antelope can go through and, you know, the deer can jump and stuff. Did you find, was the process easy to get started on working with them? Y yes and no. I would say that I got, I was a little too ambitious at first, you know, when I first got into it with, you know, I signed up for too many projects. We have, the way I got to, uh, I found out about them was in 
from the local extension office. So we have a, a beginner farmer rancher program that, that I went to and they kind of introduced us to the whole NRCS application process and uh, walked us through everything. And that's how I got in touch with them. So there's paperwork. They, they, they'll come out and they'll, you know, visit the land and they'll like walk over different projects with us. And then they will rank you in their ranking system. And the following year, you cannot start any work until you have been approved, basically is how it is. They will call you to let you know if, if you were selected or not, or if the funding was available or not. Once the funding is available, then they come up with a plan on, on how far out your projects can be. But we have to get all the projects done within five years. But they're, they're flexible when, when you do that. Uh, um, like I said, I was, I was a little too ambitious with them. I probably should have just sticked, uh, stuck to uh, getting the mesquite grubbed out. Oh, yes. Yeah. Now, is it a cost share program they're doing? It is a cost share program. Yeah. So depending on how they classify the mesquite as high, medium, or low. And then based on that, they, I guess they calculate how, how much to pay. And, and then it's up to you how you do it. And how long will they follow through with this? Or is it just the reason I'm asking? I know we had a, a pond built a number of years ago with, I'm not sure dad did it. It's probably NRCS. But I, I'm not entirely sure. It was a cost share. But I know they they came out and did periodical checks for, I think, five years on the pond. Now, I could be totally wrong with what they're doing now. That was, that was probably two or three decades ago. But how is that on your project? Once you get finished, is it done? Or do they do some periodic checks? Or there's some follow-through with that? I don't think so. I think it's pretty much after... Like we're done with the projects, like they, they come out to check, they, they'll inspect what you're doing. And based on that, they will make the, the payments. After we got the mesquite grub, they came out and they measured the, the acreage that got grubbed. And then they'll, they'll make the payments based on, on that. And the grazing aspect. So as far as the grass, they said that two years minimum that I cannot graze that pasture because they want the, the na native grass to establish. But they also want me to do some uh, weed control before I plant. So they'll be inspecting all of that. And after that, they will just come out there to check on how I was doing, how I am doing the rotational grazing in a way. But that could depend on, you know, a lot of things. Like I may not even have cows on that pasture at that point. Or, so we'll see how it goes. There's still time. I haven't thought about it much yet. Yeah. It's all a learning process. Yes, sir. Yeah. We have planted some uh, cereal rye, spring oats, um, and we used the no-till drill from uh, our local office here. The oats have done pretty good so far. The rye, not as well as much. So that's kind of my plan is to have a stockpile grass and have, you know, some sort of a crop for winter grazing. So they get some protein out of that. And when you said your local NRCS office, for us, our county has a no-till drill you can use. It's in the county seat. Is yours in the county seat or do you all have multiple areas because your county's so big? No, I think it's just with uh, the local science center. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, so it's at the science center. They keep that no-till no drill and we're able to lease it. Yeah, but it's just that one that I know of. Oh, yeah. I keep meaning to, well, I keep meaning to. I thought I would talk to local office here that has a no-till drill, but I just, I'm quite a ways out of town. So dragging that clear out here to do it is probably not as big a deal or issue as I have in my head, but... I just find that concerning for me. Natesh, it is time for us to move to our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our very first question, what's your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? You know, I, I don't really read books as I should. I do like reading research articles. So a lot of times when I'm, I'm trying to find something, I would go, like, I'll go to our local extension office's uh, webpage, the New Mexico State uh, Science Center's webpages, and I'll, I'll find, like, articles from them, and I, I'll, I'll read a lot. I, I get a lot more information out of that because it's more tailored towards us, I feel like. Like, for example, on the, on the grass, they, they have a, an article that kind of talks about what's good for the native grasses, like, you know, when to plant them, how to control the weeds and how to graze them. So yeah, that, that's kind of what I do. Just read the local offices pages. <laughs> you know, the extension offices are, are great resource and their web pages. Yes. If I, if I need some kind of information that I think I need a little bit more specific information, I go to Oklahoma State Extension and, and search through the websites and find what I need. Sometimes it gets kind of dense to find what I need, but I like going there and reading their fact sheets. A little bit different, but it works. Sometimes it does get a lot more technical in a way too. And, uh, but I'm in touch with the professors up here and they, they also, they're pretty quick to respond. Like I'll just text them something and, you know, they'll they'll let me know what they think I should do. And so that's kind of helpful as well. I do watch a lot of Greg Judy's videos from time to time. It's pretty interesting, like how they have their setup up there. I just find it difficult to kind of apply that to my operation as of yet, at least. Yeah. And, and they're in that fast cue belt and, and those, those pastors look a little different than yours, but there are certain principles there that that hold true. Yeah. I get that. I enjoy watching those videos as well. I watched one earlier about their freeze-proof trough that I hadn't, actually two things on that stuck out to me and I'll, I'll just go ahead and add this in. He purchased a fitting with a Megaflow float from Russ Wilson. It has a spigot on the side so that it'll run a little stream and you can keep the stream running, which I thought's a great idea. But I, I didn't even know Russ Wilson had anything that he, he sold on his website. So I went and looked at that earlier and thinking I need to save up money. Actually, I need, I need to get one and try it sometime. So yeah, I enjoy those videos and it's a tremendous resource. This, those YouTube videos. And in doing that, I found Russ Wilson has a, has a YouTube, YouTube channel. I didn't know he had a YouTube channel. So. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've subscribed so I can watch some of that too. Our second question, what is your favorite tool for the farm? Jordan and I were debating about this. I'm going to go with what he thinks is our best tool. And I think it's, 
it is our tractor. We have been debating about like, get, you know, putting the or investing in a tractor. I was very against it for a long time, but I kind of gave in and, and now it's been a blessing for sure <laughs> so far. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't buy a big tractor. It's only probably like 55 horse, I think. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a farmer. I'm not, not gonna, like, I'm not gonna row crop or anything. I don't need a big tractor. But the tractor we have now is is doing plenty good for us, especially like because we have our uh, pastures are not uh, contiguous acreage, you know. So some of the rangelands are out there, and sometimes we have to move equipment down there or whatever. And it's much easier to have the tractor to load up or you know haul it there and unload it there. <laughs> and obviously, at the same time, working on the farm, like the farmland, working the farmland, like planting winter crops it's been helpful so oh yes it would yeah you know we we ask these same questions of all of our guests and when i started this i really thought the favorite grazing grass related book or resource would be my favorite one what do you tell someone just getting started which will get your answer in just a moment i knew that would be a good one and that's always a favorite one but probably my favorite question to ask is what is your favorite tool because it is so open-ended and it doesn't give you much guidance on where to go with that and i just think it's always interesting to hear what what different people say i'm i'm always i don't know about always but i, I am often surprised by the answers you know and to be honest i really haven't thought and stopped and thought about what i would say but i that's one of the beauties of that question. It's just, <laughs> how do you interpret the question and then where do you go with it? So, yeah, I can see how a tractor would be very beneficial for you. Yep, yeah, and, absolutely. And I, to me, I was going to answer it at first. It was going to be my horse. You know, like I said, there, there's parts of the ranch that, that it's hard to get there. And, uh, you know, it helps having a horse and I can be horseback and, you know, just ride along the fences to check the fences are good. Sometimes when these calves, cows or heifers calf and they like to hide them and behind some stupid mesquite bush and it's hard to find them. And <laughs> it's easier to get, get on a horse and, you know, have a, a good view from the top. Our third question, what would you tell someone just getting started? I'll tell them to do a lot of research and research that's tailored towards their land and their climate and keep an open mind like you know go out and 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 learn what other people are doing or what you know what works for but what works for them is may not work for you so do that look for research that's more unique to them or more applicable and have patience and don't get bogged down into one thing. <laughs> yeah. Patience. Sometimes I was just talking to someone the other day about this. I get stuck on the details or the individual trees when I should be just looking at the forest. You know, I do that a lot with a lot of things. Like I, I still do it, you know, and Jordan's more like, like, it'll be fine. Don't like <laughs> what? Like don't yeah. get into the weeds right, right away. <laughs> like, Right, yes. It's like like we're slowly building up to it. We we're not gonna get there at day one. So Right, right. Yeah. And you can't and here's the thing we all have to be careful about, especially when we talked about YouTube and you're you're watching what's going on on Greg Judy's farm. 
he's been doing it for decades. So, so we have to remember when we're looking at his, we don't want to discourage, get discouraged by looking at where we are. And we don't want to forget that we haven't been doing it all that much time, or we may have been doing it that long, but different circumstances. It's just got to be careful about looking at your farm and looking at someone else's farm. Much more important is to look at where you were a year ago, where you are now, and where you're going in a year, comparing those to yourself. And lastly, Natish, where can others find out more about you? So we do have an Instagram account now, and it's uh, just sbarj underscore ranch. But yes, that's that's all we have for now. Our goal is to establish a website and stuff eventually. But for now, we're keeping everything just local or find me on Facebook. (laughs) And we'll post the link in our show notes. And Natesh, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing. You're getting started on this journey, and I think it's important we share about a whole range of how far you are along that journey, because there's lots of people in your position getting started. And I just appreciate you being brave and coming on and sharing and letting us know what's going on there. No, yeah, thank you. I know at first I messaged you saying we were too early in our in our journey, so I'm not sure about coming on to the podcast yet, but I, I appreciate, you know, what you're doing and, and I, I love listening to the podcast and uh, I, I get a lot of diverse information from everyone who has been on your podcast so far, and it's it's been very helpful. So thanks for doing that. <laughs> well, thank you. And I'm glad you do. And yes, I, I so believe that we need to highlight the journeys from from beginners to those who's been doing it for decades. And I know when you come on here and share, especially as a beginner, you're you're a little concerned how that's going to be received and others are going to be looking and saying, what's he doing? We're all in a journey. We're all working to get better. So I really appreciate you sharing with us today. Yes, sir. No, thank you. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, 
click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.